1 Peter, the whole of the chapter, verses 1 to 25. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in a reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've been purified, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is the flowers of the field, but the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Heavenly Father, once again, would you please still our hearts and minds? Would you help us to be attentive to you and your ways? When our minds can be distracted by so many things and we find it easy to flick, we pray that you will keep us focused and attentive on you. Amen. So, 
couple of months ago, I took my boys to see the second Hobbit movie. Um, if you, you don't know me very well, you therefore won't realise that that is a signal mark of just how much I love them. Um, I couldn't stand the Lord of the Rings movies, frankly, and I know, I know. I said that in New Zealand. It was, somebody else agrees with me. You agree with me. Thank you very much indeed. Brilliant. Let's swear eternal friendship. Um, but bad as the Lord of the Rings movies were, The Hobbit is far worse. The Hobbit too. I came to the conclusion, it's stunning, visually stunning, but the, uh, the character that had got the best idea was Smaug the Dragon, who managed to sleep through most of the movie. <laughs> But we left profoundly dissatisfied. Uh, the reason we were dissatisfied would be the reason everyone is dissatisfied as you walk out, which is that it's, the story doesn't end, does it? It's, we're two-thirds of the way through the story. Now, we know how it's going to end. We've read the book. I've read the book to the boys. Um, I know what's going to happen. And so you walk out thinking, well, I want a resolution. We want, a, we want an end. And we're like that in every movie that we, uh, we go to, every novel that we read. We're, we're looking some ki- for some kind of story to finish. We want someone to defeat the dragon, to find the murderer, to solve the puzzle, for the lovers to meet. We want the story to end. It's as though we're hardwired for stories. And even if you know the story inside out, you will still keep watching. I mean, how many times, it's been said before, but how many times have you watched a James Bond movie? I mean, they're, they're all the same. And yet you still watch it even though you've seen it before because you can't walk out of the thing halfway through. David Suchet has just finished filming every single Poirot story. Why? They are... <laughs> They are all the same. But people like the detective to find the murderer. They like the ends to be knitted together. Now, as a Christian, I want to say there's a reason for that, which is we are created for a story with an end. We are made, not just in a static way, made in God's image, which is true, but we're made to be part of God's narrative for the universe. We are hardwired, Ecclesiastes puts it, we have eternity written on our hearts. We know that the story must have some kind of resolution, some kind of an end. And so we want stories to have a purpose. And the key to 1 Peter is to see that he keeps putting us back in God's story. Now, God's story is a rich, wonderful story. In God's story, you don't have to choose between a love story where the bride meets the groom or a hero story where the evil gets defeated or a puzzle story where all the answers come together. You don't have to choose. God's story has a happy ending. It's everything you want a story to be in spades. God's story is a rich one. And what 1 Peter keeps doing is showing us the narrative that God has in place and how we find our place in that story. So look with me at verses 3 to 5. And just look at the the narrative arc 
he has for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it's all about, the Lord Jesus. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See what goes on there? If you look back, you've got the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you look forward, you've got an inheritance. And if you look now, we've got an inheritance waiting for us. In fact, what happens now, he says, is look at Jesus. He is our living hope. Now, hope is the thing that drives the story forwards. You know, Alfred Hitchcock's great movies like Psycho, he always had something called a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin was his code word for the thing that keeps the story moving forwards. The thing that keeps the story moving forwards. And in 1 Peter, the thing that keeps the story moving forwards is hope. Hope. That's what, and it's, for Peter, it's not a, I wish, like, I'm, I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get that promotion. And it's not a, a good intention. So, when somebody has a disastrous relationship, you sit down with them and you say, oh, well, other fish in the sea. Or when you sit down and somebody's had a bad diagnosis from a doctor, you say, well, I'm sure, it'll, I'm sure it'll go well. You don't know that it'll go well, do you? You don't know that there are other fish in the sea. You hope so. You're just trying to say something nice. God is not saying something nice to us. He's absolutely guaranteed what will happen. That's Christian hope. And that's why Peter talks here about we've been given birth into a living hope. Because the living hope is not a series of truths about Jesus. Jesus is the living hope. He is alive. He's been raised from the dead, says Peter. And so he is, in person, our living hope. And you can put all the weight you like of your life on the Lord Jesus and he will carry it for you. It's as though every poker chip on the table goes on Jesus. You stake everything on him. And it's not a wish, it's a guaranteed hope because Jesus is alive. Now what Peter does here is spin out various aspects of that hope. And I've got them down for you as a, in two columns. Um, and the reason I put it in two columns is I want you to see the contrast. And the contrast is by, we look at, not just by looking at what Peter says, but what if Peter weren't true? What's the opposite of what Peter says here? I was in a shop recently. I was trying to buy a really dark blue shirt. And the person behind the counter brought out a really dark blue... It was one of those old shops where they had people behind counters. Brought out a really dark blue shirt. So dark blue, I said, surely that's black. And she said, no, here's a black shirt. She brought out a black shirt, put a black shirt, and you could suddenly see that the navy blue was navy blue, not black. And sometimes having the contrast helps you to see what's actually there. So the two big headings I've got for us... The first is what Peter calls hope. That's positive and 
motivating for us. It's not naive. Look down with me at verse 6 and you will see suffering and grief and trials. So this is not naive stuff. This is something which will be true for our sisters and brothers in Syria who are being bombed into extinction. So Peter says this is not wishing things better. This is something that will be true for Christians who are suffering. But it is hope, genuine hope. Now, what is the opposite of hope? There's a whole series of things I've got down there for you, uh, beginning with the same letter, unfortunately, D. And I think if you evacuate hope from everything, what you have genuinely is despair. That is the opposite of hope. Take any kind of wish, any kind of positive thinking out of your world, and what you have is despair. And you can see it in the, uh, I think you can see it in the non-Christian philosophies of the 20th century. As people moved away from a Christian worldview into something else, and there is nothing else to cling on to. There is only despair. It's grim, and it's negative. So what goes in those two columns? What goes in the, uh, the column marked hope and the column marked despair? Well, here's the first one in verse 4. In the column marked hope, an inheritance. An inheritance. That's a rich biblical metaphor. That's one that's used time and time again for God's kingdom or God's glory. The line of the kings in the Old Testament to some ways typify human beings who are looking forward to a kingdom that's going to come to them. This is the new heavens. This is the new earth. This is everything that God has stored up for us. It is unimaginably glorious what he's got for us. You look up through a pair of binoculars or a telescope at the stars. You think of the effort that God went to putting that together. Think of the astonishing skill he shows in keeping every subatomic particle in balance so that we can be here right now. That is nothing compared to the goodness he's got stored up for us in the future. That's our inheritance. What's the opposite of an inheritance? Well... And some of you will know this in reality rather than just as an image. It's the credit card bill that just keeps getting better. Uh, Getting worse, rather. Getting bigger. It's debt. Mounting debt. Debt that just gets unpayable. There is no inheritance. There is no one who can clear the check for you. There is no one who can write it off. You are just getting worse and worse. You are... And some of you will know this in reality, rather than as a metaphor, you are owned by the credit card company. You are powerless in the face of the credit card company. That's the opposite of an inheritance. We are owned and powerless. We are in debt. What is our inheritance like? Well, here's the second thing in our little list. It is an inheritance that is, it cannot perish. It's imperishable, if you want the negative. It cannot perish. What God has in store for us cannot rot. It cannot decay. It can't go off. 
About four months ago, our fridge broke. The freezer kept working, but the fridge broke. Now, we didn't go out and buy a new one, because in the new house we were moving into, there was already a fridge freezer. So we weren't going to go out and buy a new fridge freezer because we were going to get a new fridge freezer. So we lived for about three months with a freezer but no fridge. Now, those of you who are engineers uh, will tell you what happens uh, in these environments because what is it that keeps a freezer cold? It's a pump that takes the heat out. So if you've got the fridge not working, but the freezer working, the freezer makes the fridge hotter than the surrounding room. We had a fridge that was warmer than the kitchen. <laughs> and you, you discover how quickly... I mean, it was, it was more sensible to keep things on the kitchen table than it was to put them in the fridge. Things went off stunningly Quickly. I mean, the luxury of being in our new house and having cold yogurt. Ah, <laughs> cold milk. Mm. It's, um, things, we discovered just how quickly stuff goes off. Well, Peter says, God's promise can't go off. Why not? Because he's raised Jesus from the dead. Physically, Jesus' body will not go off. It will not perish. Your body will perish. But our hope is imperishable because Jesus is alive. He is a living hope. That's why our hope cannot perish. So what's the opposite of an imperishable hope? Here's the D word. It must be death, mustn't it? Do you live with death? Do you live with death as a reality? Won't belong before the first one of your generation, the first one of your friends, gets a serious illness, unimaginably early. Someone in their early 30s gets the bad diagnosis. Won't belong. And you'll suddenly think, oh, it happens to our generation too. We are no longer immortal. And Peter says, you will live with that, and you must live with that. Sometimes we hear a story, there was one a few weeks ago, wasn't there, of a child up in Edinburgh who was murdered. And people are oh, so young, with so much potential. That shouldn't have happened. Of course, in Bible terms... You look at somebody who's 95 who dies, and we should think, so young, and with so much potential. That should not be happening. Death. Death is what we live with. But Peter says there's an alternative. And the alternative is the Christian hope. Third characteristic of it. It cannot spoil. Some translations have undefiled. But it cannot spoil. It can't be damaged. It can't get broken. It can't get knocked off a shelf or get spotty. Um, the opposite of it, I think, has got to be disappointment. Everything in life disappoints. Some of you have got young kids, and you know 
the delight on Christmas Day of the present, which on Boxing Day breaks. It stops working. Some of you can remember what that's like. Some of you, like me, are happy Apple users. We know the delight of things with an Apple symbol on because they they work better, (laughs) nicer. And we smile compared to our PC-using sad people next to them because (laughs) ours just works. But ultimately, it will disappoint too, won't it? Ultimately, it will let us down. Forget Apple things. What gives you the deepest pleasure? Are you into the arts? Is it Mozart? Is it Bach? Is it Schubert? Is it classical music? Is it the paintings? Is it theatre? What gives you deepest pleasure? That will ultimately disappoint. I think one of the hardest things to communicate is that uh, to to somebody who is not yet a Christian is how God doesn't disappoint. That the Bible just keeps getting better. You never get so familiar with it that you get tired of it. It is richer and sweeter the longer you're a Christian. It just gets better and better. And everything else, no matter how wonderful, no matter how pumped up by our culture, will disappoint. The relationship, the new relationship you've entered into, the one that's bright and sparkly and shiny and new, that'll disappoint. Bound to. Fourth characteristic. Peter says, it can't fade. Curtains fade. Talents fade. Bodies fade. What God has in store for us is quite, quite different from anything we can see round about us, which is marked, here's the D word, by decay. Marked by decay. Uh, By our old house, when we moved out, is now a complete building site. The the house, actually, the place where you lived, in the bar. You were in the bar, weren't you? No? Were you not in the bar? Wasn't it? Were you in the bar? No. Round about our old house were some old... They were basically cattle sheds that had been turned into student housing. (laughs) We washed them out first. (laughs) They'd been student housing for about 30 years. And the time had come to knock them... They they were pretty vile places, to be honest. And they were knocked down, and they're now building brand new houses. They're going up brick by brick round about us. And with a long perspective, you will say there will come a time in about 40, 50 years' time when people say those houses are pretty disgusting. They need to come down. We need to build some new ones. Everything we see round about us is marked by decay. We can't help it. We're used to it. Everything decays. Apart from the gospel. That will not decay. That is Something that cannot fade. It is the only thing that cannot fade. What is the alternative? What is the alternative? Notice that Peter doesn't say that the gospel might not or will not. He says it cannot perish or fade or do all those things. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And God's not going to change his mind. 
So it cannot perish or spoil or fade. As long as Jesus is alive, and that's the internal plan, isn't it? Verse 4 again. And here's the final comparison. It is kept in heaven for us. Who is it kept in heaven by? By the Lord Jesus, the one that God has raised from the dead. He's got it there, safe. Nothing can take it from his hands. He's not going to change his mind. He's absolutely certain. Everything else, and here's the D word, the last D word, everything else will disappear, won't it? Everything else. And I don't just mean that there will come a time in a few billion years, we won't be around, when the sun decides, it's had enough, thank you, it's going to turn into a white dwarf, whatever these things turn into. It's going to turn into something, and we'll all, everything, you know, every pyramid will melt and everything. Everything's just going to disappear, ultimately. Down the road from us, um, a lot of money's been spent on restoring a rather nice place called Kenwood House. One of London's great little secrets, Kenwood, if you don't know it. So it's a beautiful little, a beautiful, quite large, stately home on the edge of Hampstead Heath. In there is one of the world's most fabulous Rembrandts. In there is one of the world's rarest paintings, a painting by Vermeer. And they have spent millions restoring this place. It looks gorgeous. It's all going to melt. Every atom is going to fall apart. It's going to disappear. But the gospel won't, because the Lord Jesus won't. What are the implications? Well, again, if you're here on this weekend and you're not not calling yourself a Christian, you're looking around, you're thinking about it, I want to provoke you a little bit. And when you push back and say, well, surely we've got some ground for hope, we've got some ground for optimism, haven't we? I want to say, what do you mean? What possible ground for hope can you have? What, what ground for optimism can you have when everything will melt and disappear? What possible grounds do you have for thinking of anything other than despair? Look at the alternative again. We are born again into this living hope. It's a completely new start. Starting on a new kind of existence, a new way of living, a new way of relating not just to the God who made the universe, but to the entire universe he made. That's what Peter means. It, 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 is, it is so revolutionary that only a new birth kind of language is sufficient to describe it. It's a phrase that Jesus uses. You must be born again, he says. The other New Testament writers use it too, because this is a completely new start for any human being. It is not the universe carrying on its consistent track and then we decide, well, I'm going to think this rather than that. I'm going to be a Christian rather than a Buddhist. I'm going to vote Labour rather than Conservative. It's not that kind of choice within the tracks of our universe. It is completely outside it where Jesus, our living hope, is keeping it safe for us in heaven completely outside our universe and therefore completely safe because it cannot be destroyed. Christians, where are you putting your hope? 
What are you ultimately trusting in? I don't mean silly little toys like the Apple things. What are you actually hoping in? Because Peter will warn us. I won't be here with you. It'll come up later on in 1 Peter. Peter will warn us that false hopes have sharp edges. Trust in the wrong thing and it will hurt you. Because the wrong thing is the wrong thing. It's not meant to take our weight. It's not meant to be trustable. The only thing that will ultimately not disappoint, not hurt, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of us know that. Some of us have taken life choices in the past that have left us feeling deeply disappointed, deeply marked by dirt and despair and decay. We've made the wrong kind of relationship choices. And if we're not careful, we think, my life from now on is ruined because of that choice I made five years ago. My life is now (coughs) on a track that can never be anything better than what it is, which is rather sour. It's as though our disappointments are the centre of a solar system and our life revolves around them and we never escape its gravitational pull. And Peter says, but you have been born again into a living hope. Your life does not revolve around that which causes you despair because of what you've done in the past. Your life revolves around a new son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes sense of everything and your hope is no longer one that will be shriveled up by dirt and decay and disappointment because that will never be true of the Lord Jesus. He will never, ever let you down. Let your life revolve around him, and it is marked by hope. Not shallow optimism, but the hope that will help our sisters and brothers in Syria to stand firm to the Lord Jesus, even while their homes are bombed to bits. Look at verse 5. Who, by God's power, us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see that wonderful two two parallel tracks? God promises to keep our salvation safe because it's kept in heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And God promises to keep us safe. We are shielded. Salvation and our faith are both protected by God. He keeps them both safe together. What's the greatest implication of all? The greatest thing to mull over? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest implication is not that we take some notes. The greatest implication is that we praise. That We are so wrapped up in the grandeur, the breathtaking grandeur of what God has done that he captivates our hearts and our minds and our wills to love him and obey him. We're going to do that ultimately when we sing together. We're going to do it as we encourage each other. But for the moment, let's pray together and bless him together.
Heavenly Father, what you've done in raising Jesus from the dead, which looks in retrospect so small and we talk about it so glibly, but what you've done in raising him from the dead and reversing what looks like the natural order of the universe is breathtaking. To raise a dead person to life and make that person the Lord of the universe, never to die. And then to make him the center of our hope forever. Father, you know that is beyond even the beginnings of our imagining to conceive. We ask you to forgive us when we flirt with false hopes and rely on anything other than the Lord Jesus. Forgive us when we find what you've done for us dull or shallow or uninteresting. Father, captivate our hearts with an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade. And then cause us to live as those who've been born again into this hope for a different king, different saviour, different world. Amen.